You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is Genesis 38, verses 1 through 30, uh, and I will be reading verses 12 through 30 today. It is on page 22 of the Seatback Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those home with you. Genesis 38, verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here, so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I brought this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we do give you our hearts. We yield them to you. We thank you for your revealed word, your revealed will in the scriptures. And we thank you for your sovereign will. You are in total control. Help us to be attentive and give us understanding as Jonathan delivers your word today. Blessing and honor, glory and power to our God forever. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen. You may be seated. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Genesis 49, verse 10. At the end of Jacob's life, the people of Israel were living in Egypt. And there in Egypt, as Judah was getting ready to go the way of death, he gave a long extended speech in Genesis chapter 49. Now in this long speech, he gave his farewell address to his children. And he gave a long extended blessing to each and every one of his sons. In this address was probably a bittersweet moment. Jacob had had a wonderful life. He had been called by the Lord and blessed by the Lord despite his sinfulness. I'm sure this was a sweet moment for his children. But this was also a moment of great expectation because Jacob's blessings would have huge implications for the nations of Israel and the tribes that would come from it. But there's also a lingering question. Who was going to rule over God's people once Jacob was gone? Now, as we've walked through Genesis, we've seen Jacob's children act very sinfully. We saw at some point or another three of his oldest sons try to steal their father's role by taking leadership while he was still alive. We also saw uh, Jacob's ten oldest son uh, involved in a massive cover-up that almost ended in the death of one of their children. It would seem that none of these children are qualified, but even in this sinful and broken family, there was one clear front-runner, Jacob's son, Joseph. Now, through the text so far, we've seen Joseph acting as a man of integrity, a man of honor, a man who stood up for the truth, even when it meant that things would be difficult for him. Joseph, as we will look forward, will eventually rise to a seat of power. He will reign over one of the largest thrones and the largest kingdom of all over the earth. He seems to be the clear choice. But the thing is, Jacob doesn't choose Joseph. He chooses Judah. Now, Judah couldn't be anything more different than Joseph. Last week in chapter 37, we saw him uh, in a pivotal role as his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. In fact, it was his idea to do it in the first place. And this morning as we navigate through chapter 38, we will see Judah make some sinful choices that should not just disqualify him from leadership, but should also disqualify him from being a part of God's people. So the question we ask this morning is why Judah? Of all the sons of Jacob, why would he choose Judah to rule? This morning, we're going to answer that question from a rather uncomfortable text, the story of Judah and Tamar. And I know what you're thinking. 
Why the heck is this passage even here in the first place? I'm sure as we heard this read, it felt very uncomfortable and rather strange. But I'm here to tell you this morning that this story is integral to the book of Genesis and will help shape the rest of the Bible as it unfolds. This morning as we dive in this text, we will see God take a sinful and broken man and transform him and change him into a man who will rule the nations. But before we hop into our text, I want to give us some handholds to understand why this text fits into this place in the book of Genesis. Now, if you were with us last week in chapter 37, you remember that Judah was the one who originally suggested that his brother sell Joseph into slavery. That text is highlighting Judah's sinfulness and his brokenness. It's highlighting the fact that he is the worst of all of his brothers. Next week in chapter 39, we will see Joseph in slavery. There he will be tempted by sexual immorality. And rather than diving into that immorality, he will flee. That text is acting as a contrast uh, to, Ju- to Judah's actions here today in our text. You see, these two stories are running parallel. Though we're walking through Joseph's story, we will see Judah's story running alongside of it. And by the end, in the, in the, the high point of our text, will be about the time that Joseph is rising to power in the nation of Egypt. As we hop into chapter 38 this morning, we will look at Judah's sin center stage. We will see that he is clearly a sinful and broken man, but we will also see his sinfulness confronted. As we look at at this confrontation, we will see Judah transformed and change. And we will begin to understand how God takes sinners like us and leads us to redemption. This morning, we will be taking a look at three points that will help us understand how sin affects the lives of God's people and how God ultimately leads us to redemption. With that in mind, please open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 38. And the first point we'll be taking a look at this morning is number one, Sin will make us blind to our unrighteousness. Now, as we walk through this first portion of text, we will see Judah has fully immersed himself in the culture of the day. We will see him ignore the righteousness of God and follow after the false righteousness of the world. But let me show you that from the text. Look uh, look with me at verses 1 to 6. It says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and called his name Onat. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Jezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, as we hop into our text, we learn that Judah has left his brother and went to the city, his brothers, and let, went to the city of Chazeb. There he befriended a man named Hira and marries a daughter of a man named Shua. And they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And, daughter, and Judah finds a, a wife for his son named Tamar. Now, all of this feels rather normal. 
Throughout Genesis, we've seen a lot of genealogies and a, a lot of marriages, but there's some red flags here in the text that should bring some questions about Judah's actions. Number one, we see Judah leaving his family. Number two, we see him making friends with the Canaanites. And number three, we see him entering into marriages with the Canaanites. Now, what you'll remember as we've been walking through Genesis is that God has called Judah's family to be distinct from the nations around them. He has called them to be separate, something other than them, and not to intermarry with them. And here we see Judah sacrificing that distinction. He is abandoning that calling of God and with it rejecting God's promises. And we've seen this pattern in other figures in the book of Genesis. People like Lot and Ishmael and Esau, all people who turned away from God. And Judah here seems to be following the same path. You couple that with the fact that last week we saw him sell his brother into slavery, and it's very clear that Judah is a sinner. He's a man who's diving headfirst in the culture, and as we look forward, we will see that he's also leading his family in sin. Look with me at verses 7 to 10. It says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, here in verses 7 to 10, we see something we don't often see in the book of Genesis. It clearly says that God put two people to death. Now, this is unusual, and we've actually only seen this a couple times so far. The first time was during the flood, when God sent this global flood to wipe out all the sinful people of the earth. The second time was at Sodom and Gomorrah, when God rained down fire to destroy these two cities. And what that should tell us, that just like in the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins that are happening here in the text are severe. This is serious. God found it necessary to intervene and put these sons to death. Now, we don't know what Ur did that was so evil, and we don't know how he was put to death. But we know what Onan did, and it has to do with something called leveret marriage. Basically, back in those days, there was this practice called leveraged marriage where if a man died who was married and had no children, his brother then would marry his wife and they would have a child for the deceased man. And so this child, the son of this marriage, would then go on to uh, be the heir of the deceased man. He would carry on his, fam uh, his family's line, and he would take care of his mother when he grew up. Now, I know this is a wild practice, and it's very unusual, but we have to understand that this practice was all about protecting women in an age when they couldn't protect themselves. Back then, women could not work and gain their own standard of living, so it was important they had children and a man to take care of them. It was a cultural thing. On top of that, that son of that marriage would go on to carry on the family line, which meant everything to him. 
for people in that age, to have your line erased was all about erasing your identity. It was erasing your legacy from the earth. So it was crucially important that they have a son to carry on that line. And that's what was tripping up Onan in the text. You see, when Ur, his older brother, died, it meant that Onan was actually going to receive a larger inheritance. You see, back in those days when, uh, uh, when uh, a person had children, they would break up their inheritance to go to all of their sons. And the firstborn son would actually receive a double portion, so twice as much as his brothers. So when Ur died, because he had no children, that double portion would then go to Onan. So he had a lot to gain here in the text. But if Ur had a son, if Tamar had a son, that meant that double portion would then go to the son of Tamar rather than Onan. And that's what's going on here in the text. It's all about wealth. It's all about property. And it's sinful in the eyes of the Lord. Basically, what Onan is doing here is leaving Tamar abandoned. And he is ending the line of Ur, basically sentencing them to death. And that's why this is so evil in the eyes of the Lord. He is prospering while others suffer. Clearly, the point here is that Judah is leading his family into sinfulness. His children are walking in sin just like he is walking in sin. But Judah's going to be blind to this fact. In fact, rather than blaming his children for their sins, he's going to point the finger in another direction. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, here we get a rare glimpse into the inner thinkings of a character in the text. It says that Judah was afraid that if he gave his youngest son to Tamar, he would die also. Now, the implications here in the text of Judah's fear is that he believes that Tamar is actually responsible for his two sons dying. And that's not unusual in their culture. You see, it was commonly understood that if a woman was widowed more than once, she was probably involved in witchcraft or in some way had wronged some deity. Now, the reality is that couldn't be any further the truth. This is an assumption that their culture made. But what Judah here is doing is he's passing the buck onto Tamar. He's saying, you are the sinner, not me. You were the one that put these son, my sons to death, not their own sinfulness. He is pointing the blame at Tamar, even though she has nothing to do with the situation. And he's actually lying to her in the process. He's telling her that eventually he will give her, her his third son with no intention of actually doing so. And what that means for Tamar is that she would be forced to live in widowhood for the rest of her life. For her to go and seek another husband would be considered idolatry and was considered an extreme crime. So Tamar is left abandoned. But what's happening here in the text is Judah is building himself up in his own eyes. He is blind to his own unrighteousness, and he's even convinced himself that he is a good person. 
He can't even recognize the fact that both of his children are sinners and he has led them into destruction. For us, as we look at Judah's actions, we have to understand that that's how sin operates in our lives. Sin will deceive you and trick you into thinking that you are a righteous person. Sin will blind you to the fact that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a savior. Sin is like the murderer who's living in a neighborhood when all their neighbors think he's a good person. But sin isn't simply living next door. Sin lives in our own hearts. You see, the reality is is that sinfulness doesn't care if you feel like you're a moral person. It doesn't care if you're living up to the cultural expectations. It doesn't even care if you're trying to live after the appearance of biblical righteousness. Sin will trick you into thinking you're a good person while all the while leading you into death. You see, for us as people of the word, as people of God, we constantly have to be checking our actions against the word of God. We have to be measuring up our lives next to God's standard, not the standard of the culture around us. We have to look into the face of our creator and realize that we are in desperate need of salvation because we all fall short of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, God gave them the law so that they could understand that they could not live up to his holiness because no one can be holy like God is holy without his intervention. As we move forward in our text, we will see Judah continue in his sinfulness and brokenness because he does not realize that he is a sinner. We will see that sin will be buried in his life and will actually take over his actions. And that brings us to our second point here this morning. Sin will take root in our hearts. Now as we cover this second section of text, we will see Judah dive more into the culture of the day and age, and he will be more concerned about being shamed by his society than he will be about following the righteousness of God. But let's go ahead and look at that in the text. Follow with me in verses 12 to 14. It says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she had not been given him in marriage. Now, reading on here, we see that death continues to plague the family of Judah, and this time it's his wife. Now, this should be a clear sign to Judah that Tamar is not actually responsible for the death of his two children. While she was involved in the first two marriages, she's got no connection to Judah's wife, and we don't know why she died, and the text doesn't say it has anything to do with sinfulness, but this should be a signal that maybe Tamar isn't the one responsible. But rather than owning up to the fact that he is a sinner and stepping out and doing what's right, Judah refuses to repent 
and actually do what he said he was going to do. For Tamar, she begins to realize that Judah has no intention of actually giving Sheila to him to be his wife, to be his husband. See, the text says that Sheila had grown to the age when he would typically be married, but no marriage had happened. In other words, Tamar now knows that Judah is lying to her. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. Essentially, what we're seeing here Tamar doing is taking off her widow's garment and putting on the clothes of a prostitute. And for her, her plan is to go wait by the roadside and wait for Judah to come by and to sleep with her. Basically, what she's doing here in the text is prostituting herself out to her father-in-law. Again, a wild detail. Very strange. But again, we have to understand, this goes back to leverant marriage practices. You see, as I already pointed out, when a married man died in that culture, his brother would then marry his wife and had children for him. But if that deceased man had no brothers uh, capable of having a child, that duty would then go on to her father-in-law. That duty was supposed to now go on to Judah. So what Tamar is doing here in the text, though this is unusual and rather strange, is trying to keep her father-in-law accountable. He promised her a son. He promised that he would provide for her. And now she knows he has no intentions of doing so. So she strikes up this plan and tries to keep him accountable. As we see moving forward, this plan will actually work. Look with me at, at verses 15 to 19. It says, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, put, uh, put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, here we see as Judah's walking down the roadside, he sees a prostitute and he decides to sleep with her. This, again, is an example of Judah's lack of character and lack of integrity. Number one, for Tamar to even know that this plan would work in the first place is a clear sign that Judah is a sinner and everybody knows it. She knows that he will follow this temptation. Number two, we are seeing Judah fully engrossed in the Canaanite culture. You see, if you look here at verse 21, you'll see that Judah believes that he is sleeping with a cult prostitute. Basically, what a cult prostitute back in those days was with a, a man or a woman who would sell themselves sexually to a person is an act of worship to a deity. The belief was that if they participated in this activity, they would honor that God and they would provide for a good harvest. But what that means is that Judah doesn't just believe that he's being sexually immoral. He's also being a part of idolatry. He's also willingly taking part in the worship of a false god, and he knows it. 
You see, Judah is diving headfirst into the culture. He is diving himself in to all their practices, all their beliefs, and even serving their gods. Clearly, Judah is broken. And we'll see as we move forward in verses 20 to 23 that Judah has put himself now in a tough situation. Well, we won't read those verses here. You can skim through and see that Judah goes ahead and sends the payment that he agreed upon. He sends his friend Hira to bring the young goat that he had promised. But when he shows up, no one's ever heard of a prostitute on this roadside. And that's a huge problem for Judah. Because we saw here in the text that he gave her his signet, his cord, and his staff. Basically, in those days, a signet was a ring that would have a seal on it. And that seal would be used in business transaction to mark like a signature. And it would have a cord around it. Along with that, that staff would have that same signature that was on the signet. And what that means is that these three items were clear identifying markers. Everyone would have known these belonged to Judah because they have his symbols. And that's a huge problem. You see, it's one thing to sleep with a prostitute and even one thing for everybody to know about it. But for that to be spoken about in public, for him to be brought forward before the culture around him, now that was shameful. But note, he wasn't concerned about whether his actions were righteous or not. He was concerned about being embarrassed by the people of the city around him. You see, Judah has no regard for the the laws of God. He has no regard for the promises that God has given his family. Judah is a sinner. But we also have to recognize here in the text is it seems likely that Judah had no intentions of sleeping with a prostitute when he traveled to Timnah. You see, you note here in the text that Judah actually had to go back and receive payment. What happened here in the text is that Judah was walking on the roadside and he was turned away by temptation. But the reality is, Judah sinned here not because he sinned in one action, but because sin was dwelling inside of his heart. Judah had allowed sin to take over his life. Judah had allowed sin to seep into his life and now he has been led astray into temptation. We have to understand that if we are not careful, if we are not serious about our sin and brokenness, that it will provide opportunities to manifest itself in our lives in broken and evil ways. Look at how James says it here in James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see what James is pointing out here in the text is saying that sin will bury itself in our, in our hearts and will begin to control our outward actions. It will lead us into temptation that we never thought possible. It will lead us into brokenness. Jesus pointed out this point that James made in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, anyone who hates your brother in your heart has already committed murder. And anyone who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. 
You see, when sin dwells inside of us, it doesn't matter if we follow through with the outward action. We are still broken and sinful. And if we allow that sin to grow in our lives, it'll lead us to make choices we never believed possible. No one wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to commit murder. No one wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to be an adulterer. It's a path of sin that we follow over and over and over again. When we allow sin to root into our lives, it will lead us into destruction. For us Christians, we have to be serious about the sin that is dwelling in our hearts. And it doesn't matter what sin it is, whether it's lust or anger, whether it's gossip or slander, whether it's covetousness or jealousy, anything that's dwelling in our heart that is contrary to the word of God needs to be rooted out of our lives. We are called to a different standard. We are called to follow after the holiness of a holy God. And we cannot let sin rule us. But for Judah, we will see him walk further and further into that temptation, further and further into brokenness without any sense of repentance. But for Judah, the time is coming when God will confront his sins in the most unusual way. And for us, as we are asking the question, what do we do when sin is dwelling in our hearts? We see the answer here in our text, in our third point this morning. Number three, sin needs to be repented. Follow with me in verse 24. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, the hypocrisy here is thick. We literally just read about Judah sleeping with a prostitute. And now he's upset about Tamar doing the same thing. But in the culture in the day and age, it wasn't seen as unusual for a man to have extramarital relations. But for women, they received the harshest of punishments. Now, what we have to understand is that Judah is living in the cultural norms. And we have to understand that the cultural norms about sexual morality around us do not line up with the Word of God. Our, our culture says that we can sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. It says we can do whatever we want to do as long as it makes us happy. But God has a different standard of sexual morality. You see, for us, it doesn't matter if it's premarital or extramarital. It doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual. It doesn't even matter if it's physical or lusting with your own eyes. If God calls it sinful, we have to call it sin. But we have to understand that this is something that we all struggle with. Sexual immorality is ravenous in our culture and has even slipped into the church. We are living in a day and age when uh, pornography is embedded in our culture. It's plastered in our TV shows and it's standing right in our pockets 
every single day. And it will seek to ensnare you. For those of us here this morning who are struggling with lust or pornography or extramarital relationships, you have to understand that there is forgiveness. But you have to turn from your sins, confess your sins before God, and receive the forgiveness of the Lord. We have to be people who confess our sins because the Bible calls us to. I am so grateful for the people in my lives who keep me accountable. I am so grateful for the men who I can confess my sins to because I believe the gospel and I believe there's forgiveness. And I urge you this morning, if you are struggling with sexual immorality, Seek somebody to confess your sins to. Seek someone to keep you accountable. God has provided people in the church, and I urge you to seek someone. And if you don't have someone in your life to do that, seek out one of the pastors or one of the staff or one of our elders and ask if you can repent of your sins. But we also have to understand that sexual immorality is just a sin on the surface. And it's usually something that is embedded deep in our lives. And we certainly see that is the case in the life of Judah. But the moment is coming when his sins are going to be revealed and he is going to be confronted by his unrighteousness. Look with me at verses 25 to 26. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, the ring, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. I'll talk about an intense moment. At the same time, a little comical. This is like one of those gender reveal videos gone wrong, but times 10. Here is Judah fuming, ready to put his daughter-in-law to death, and then he realizes, oh no, those belong to me. Now, I want you to notice here the parallel in our text to the text about David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In both of these cases, sexual immorality is revealed to the guilty party, and God blesses the women who are taken advantage of. Now, what we need to understand is that while Judah is clearly living a sinful life, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. So we need to understand that it's not just wildly sinful people who are caught in temptation. It's also people who are following God, like David. In both of these situations, these men are allured and enticed by their own desires and are led down a trail of brokenness. And while we don't have time to track down that parallel, what we have to understand is that for both of these men, this is a punch to the gut. For Judah here, he stands up and says, she is more righteous than I. Now let's remember just a second ago, Judah was ready to put Tamar to death. In other words, what he's saying 
is I am guilty of death. I am the sinner. I am the one who deserves to be destroyed. Judah has realized his brokenness. And while he's been walking down this path for decades, though he's been living his life in sinfulness and brokenness, we see here Judah see his sins, repent of his sins, and we will see him be a changed man. You see, when we were first introduced to Judah, we saw a vile sinner. He was a selfish man only looking out for his own, own interests. He willingly sold his brother into slavery, abandoned his family, and assimilated himself into the evil culture of the Canaanites. But from here on out, he will be different. Judah will return home. He will lead his brothers and his family through hardship. And he will even willingly volunteer to go to prison in place of his younger brother. You see, what we're seeing from Judah here is a true act of repentance. And what we need to understand is that repentance isn't just the guilt that we feel in our heart. Repentance is a changed mind. Repentance is a heart that changes from our brokenness and agrees with the righteousness of God. It's a heart that turns from its actions and turns to holiness. Well, Judah will continue to be a sinner. We will see him step up in ways like never before, and he will ultimately lead to the line that will point us to Jesus because of his act of repentance. But we also need to understand that Judah is not the hero of the story. It's Tamar. And as we look forward, we will see God bless her abundantly. Look with me at verses 27 to 30. It says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore she called his name Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Now, as we read here, we see that Tamar and Judah are blessed with beautiful twin boys. In a text that is strangely similar to the birth of Jacob and Esau in chapter 25. And the reason that is, is because these two texts are parallel. When Jacob and Esau were in the womb, they were wrestling in there, jostling for position. And we are seeing the same thing here in our text. In chapter 25, we saw the oldest marked with red. Esau had red hair. In our text, we will see Zerah, the oldest, marked with a scarlet cord. And what this text, this parallel is pointing to us is the fact that just like in Jacob and Esau, here in our text, the younger will be greater than the older. You see, as Jacob went on to rule the nation of Israel to be the father of the Israelites, Perez will go on to be the father of the kingly line that would ultimately lead us to Jesus. You see, here in the text, we are seeing a story of redemption. Though Jacob 
though Judah had led his family into sinfulness and brokenness and led them on a path to death, we see Tamar step in to take a massive step of faith that will ultimately bring redemption to the line of Judah. Those Judah's family was on the verge of being wiped out, of being extinct. Tamar's one act of righteousness will lead to a story of redemption. Here, Tamar, the Redeemer, is stepping into the place that Judah rightfully should have took and is providing for him two twin boys in the place of the two sons that that he lost. Tamar is our Redeemer. Tamar stepped in in our text to put herself under the death sentence, to bring new life to a man who was living in sinfulness. Because of her story of redemption, she will one day be included in the genealogy of of Jesus. She will be honored as a person who will point us forward to our Savior and the ultimate Redeemer. But her story doesn't just point to Jesus and the fact that she was in his genealogy. You see, just like Tamar stepped in to save the family of Judah, Jesus steps in to save all the families of all the earth. When Jesus came to this world, he came to willingly put himself under our death sentence, to willingly put himself under our guilt that we would receive salvation. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He bore our guilt. And though Tamar would not ultimately face death, Jesus would die on our behalf. Jesus died for your guilt and your sin. And because Jesus stepped in to be our Redeemer, we can willingly walk before him in repentance. We can willingly offer up our sins at the foot of the cross knowing that he will save us. Because Jesus not only died on that cross, he also rose from the dead. See, for you here this morning who are walking in the path of Judah, you have to understand that you are not the hero of your story. You are a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. You are a sinner in need of salvation, and nothing that you do on this earth will ever make you good enough to stand before the God of creation. But Jesus has come to offer you a path of forgiveness. The Bible says that if anyone repents and turns to Jesus, no matter how vile, no matter how sinful, no matter what you've done, you will receive forgiveness. Because Jesus took your punishment on the cross. We can have salvation. If you are here as a Christian this morning, you have to understand that you have the freedom to confess your sins before your brothers and sisters. You have the freedom to lay down your brokenness. You have the freedom to, be, to let go of the sin that ensnares you. You are free from your brokenness because Jesus died for you. And he has now given you the crown of life. We no longer have to be worried about being put to shame. We no longer have to worry about our guilt and death because Jesus took it all. And he has given us the crown of life. 
Christian, you are forgiven. Confess your sins and accept your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the story of Judah and Tamar. Though it's an uncomfortable passage, a passage that is filled with immorality, we are thankful for your forgiveness. That if you can forgive a man like Judah, a man who is walking in destruction, you too can forgive us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your salvation and the grace that you poured out for us on the cross. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.